you're listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast, where the forecast here is always compelling as we discuss real-life challenges, successes, and stories from the journey to Hybrid Cloud with your host, Andre Tost. All right, welcome everyone, and thanks for listening to today's episode of the Hybrid Cloud Podcast. Today's guest is Francesca Rossi, and this will be a bit different from other episodes that we've done before because the topic at least doesn't on the surface seem related to hybrid cloud, but we'll see if we get there somehow anyway. Francesca is leading IBM's efforts on AI ethics, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Thanks so much for joining us, Francesca. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So I think while we start with, as always, we'll start with introductions. So if you could tell us a bit about your background, how did you land in AI ethics and what is it that you do? Okay. So my studies are in computer science. So that's where my background is. And then after graduating in computer science and my PhD as well, I decided to stay in academia. So for 25 years, I was first an assistant, then an associate, and then a full professor of computer science, teaching various things around computer science and also artificial intelligence, because even my master thesis, which was many years ago, was already in AI. And for the last 20 years in academia, I was at the University of Padova in Italy, And then after those 20 years at that university, I decided to go on sabbatical and I went to the Radcliffe Institute, which is part of Harvard University. And that is an institute which is very peculiar because every year it hosts 50 fellows from all over the world, but also from all the disciplines. So, for example, I was the only computer scientist and then there were all the other sciences represented, all the other arts and all the other humanities. And then what happens in that year at Radcliffe that they force you to spend time together. And it doesn't come really natural because these people are not used. I mean, I was not used to work and talk and spend time and collaborate with people not in my field, not in AI or computer science. And and when you say spend time together, this is spending time together in the same room. In the same room, but also it was the same building. We were all in the same building at the Radcliffe Institute. But also we were giving talks to each other, telling each other what we were working on, what our plans were. But of course, I could not use, for example, the same terminology or the same depth that I would use with another computer scientist. I had to have another way of telling the story of what I was doing. And also these people were not really interested in my latest result or experiment or whatever theorem, but they were interested in the big questions about uh, this technology, AI, that I was working on. So that's where I started asking myself these other questions. What's the impact of what I'm working on, on society, on people? And also that year, that was 2015, was also the year where many organizations were starting to think about the impact of AI on people, on society, the way we work, the way we interact, the way we function in our society. And so during that year, again, I started working in this very multidisciplinary way and asking these other questions that were less technical, but related to my technical work. And then at the end of that sabbatical year, Instead of going back to my university, I got the offer from IBM to join IBM Research. And so I joined IBM 
at the end of 2015. And immediately we started thinking about what is this AI ethics? What does it mean for this company or in general for technology? for whoever builds the technology, uses the technology, deploys the technology, and so on. And then so the journey in IBM on AI ethics started since when I joined, which was, again, at the end of 2015, with, the, at the beginning, a phase of uh, awareness. So what is this? How are we going to deal with these issues that were seen in real life, like some AI system that was behaving in a way that was not desirable, that was making discriminations, that was doing things that were not planned, but they were actually impacting in not positive ways society and people. So first, a phase of awareness. Then the second phase for a few years of synergy and coordination between different business units at IBM with an initial AI ethics board that I was chairing that had mainly the role of keeping everybody aware of what was happening within the company in the various business units around AI and the impact of AI in society. And then a second phase, which we are in still, with a reincarnation of the AI ethics board that now I co-chair together with our chief privacy officer, Christina Montgomery. And now the AI ethics board, first of all, representing all the business units. So there are about 20 people that represent all the business units, the technical ones, but also consulting, but also research, of course, but also legal, but also government relations and others. And it has a full decision power, for example, about evaluating our offering to our clients when they seem to raise some issues around AI ethics or in developing playbooks for our developers on what to do to mitigate AI bias when they're building an AI model and so on. So more and more the things became more and more concrete from initial very high-level principles to very concrete actions for all IBMers in whatever role they play in their everyday job. And on top of that, uh, I've also been involved externally to IBM in many AI ethics organizations, especially multi-stakeholder organizations where companies are together with civil society organizations, with academia, with policymakers, to understand what's the best way to really drive AI in a beneficial direction. So, for example, I work with the Partnership on AI, which IBM co-founded together with many other tech companies and civil society organizations and academia. Or we work with the World Economic Forum, that they have these councils around AI and responsible AI. So there are a lot of these other external engagements that I think is the way that IBM has in bringing our experience around AI ethics and also learning from the other stakeholders, which is, is very, very important. Since I'm part of IBM research, I work multi-division, but I am an AI researcher, so I also lead projects around uh, advancing AI. And I also uh, spend time in uh, organizations that support AI research all over the world, like, uh, for example, AAAI, which is the worldwide association of AI researchers. And I will be the next president of this association starting in two weeks. 
So I also spend time in supporting research around AI, but also always with the idea that AI should advance in a way that is aligned to human values, whether it's fairness or transparency, explainability, you know, and it's also, which is one of the principles of IBM around AI ethics, that should be advanced in a way that supports human intelligence rather than creating an alternative form of intelligence. So always advancing AI with this idea, no? like trying to support human creativity or human decision-making or quality or capabilities to do things aligned to our values. So that's the main goal of AI ethics, no? to take the best out of this technology to advance it, to make it useful for individuals or for companies to do things faster, more optimal, uh, better, and so on. But always uh, with the the goal of doing that in a way that is respectful and protects human values. So one of the main ones that, for example, people talk about a lot is this idea of fairness. We don't want decisions made by humans, of course, to be unfair, but also when the decisions are made by machines or even when machines are not making decisions but are recommending decisions to human beings, they should do that in a way, for example, that respects fairness. And because of some techniques that people that are successful in AI from other points of view, like those based on machine learning, are not very transparent in how they get to their output from the input data, this could lead to possible unfairness in the decision because we, as developers, we may inject our own biases into the data that we collect, how we label the training data, how we make decisions during the development and so on. So we may inject bias into machines and this could generate a machine that then does not behave fairly. But isn't that incredibly difficult in terms of, you just mentioned fairness. Now, everyone will always agree on that it's important to be fair. But what that actually means in a concrete detail, that obviously can lead to much debate. And that goes straight back to what you mentioned earlier, the values. Who determines what the right values are and that we can all stand behind them? At a high level, obviously, we say we don't want to discriminate based on race or gender, for example. But to go and to actually implement that into a concrete mechanism that can be used to monitor and check an actual machine learning model, for example, I imagine that that's really difficult. Well, we spent uh, some time to go from these very clear, high-level statements around fairness to a concrete playbook for our developers. So, of course, uh, there are legally recognized protected variables. So one can start from those. You say these are protected variables, whether it's race, gender, and others. We should make sure that what the AI solution that we deliver or we use are not making discriminations over those protected variables. But of course, even if you say that, then it's not, as you say, that simple because protected variables can be grouped in different ways. Uh, You can have tolerance for bias, which is higher or lower, depending on the scenario. You can have a, a model that doesn't have any of the protected variables. So you may think that your model is not impacted by any discussion about bias, but there may be variables that are proxies for the protected variables. So, in fact, then you have to still look at uh, checking or even mitigating bias. So, 
One thing that we did, which comes natural in a tech company, is to build some tools to uh, detect bias uh, over some protected variables with some grouping and so on in the training data or in the model or in the output of the model. So technology company, what it does, it builds a tool that is another piece of technology that helps detect and mitigate bias, for example. But then soon we realized that having a tool was not enough for our developers. You really needed to help them understand how to use that tool with what parameters, with what thresholds for bias, even what the protected variable is and what the proxy is, was we needed to help them. So a lot of educational material and also a lot of effort and time spent in integrating these new processes, for example, the process to detect and mitigate bias in developing AI model, with the processes that the developers were already used to following. For example, security by design or privacy by design. They were already used to develop AI models with these additional by design properties. And now we were telling them, now you have to add this kind of AI ethics by design or bias testing and checking by design. And of course, uh, we understood that if we were adding another layer, it was not going to be adopted very widely. And so we needed to really integrate with the existing processes. So we understood that we needed to not only develop uh, technical tools, the principles were not enough, the technical tools were not enough. We needed to add the educational material, the training, design thinking sessions, the integration with existing processes. And also we try to make the teams as diverse as possible because the more diversity you have in a team, for example, related to bias, and the more these people recognize each other biases because sometimes these developers don't even realize that they are injecting their own biases into whatever they are building. So, yes, it's not that everybody has the same values, but you can have an approach where you say, okay, for bias, this is what we mean by bias. These are the protected variables that we are considering. And then we put together a playbook that is the same all over IBM. So it does not depend on the specific regulation that is in effect in that country. And in fact, even when there are no regulations, we adopt that playbook. So that's a centralized governance that we decided to have around these concrete actions around AI ethics. How far does that go? So you just mentioned we need to educate developers and we need to establish processes for developers to avoid bias wherever possible. As a technology vendor, though, a lot of our products are merely the tools that we give to our customers to build their own machine learning models. So the question there, isn't it a complicated question to say, how far does our responsibility as the provider of technology go in ensuring that you know bias is not being applied by, by models that we ourselves do not author? So I would assume there's also an educational aspect to all of this to also teach our customers to do the right thing, so to speak. No, definitely. Even if uh, you have, uh, well, a completely unbiased doesn't exist. But I mean, even if you took care in a satisfactory way of the AI bias in a certain AI model, then you can deploy it to somebody who could use it in an inappropriate way with a distribution of data that is completely different from the one that you have trained and tested, for example. And so that could uh, result in possible unfair behavior of the system, even if you 
try to take care of this bias during the design and the development. So when we evaluate our offering to our clients and we try to understand whether these offerings are aligned to our principles of AI ethics, we evaluate three things. One is the property of the technology that we are delivering. So whether it's fair, explainable, whatever, transparent, whatever. The properties that of the thing that we build, we built and we are delivering to our client. Second, we evaluate the uses that the client wants to do or with what he wants to do with this technology. And often, if the problem maybe is not in the technology, but the problem is in the uses of that technology, and we often put conditions in the contractual agreement to say, I'm delivering you this technology, but you're not allowed to use it for these purposes, or you are only allowed to use it for this thing that we agreed. And in the future, you cannot use it for something else. And face recognition, isn't that an example of that, where that happened? Exactly, exactly. So you may remember that our CEO already was very vocal about saying that IBM does not offer anymore general purpose facial recognition technology. What does it mean? It means that whenever we offer face recognition technology, we want to have complete control on the uses of that technology. So general purpose, it means that you wouldn't have any control. So you deliver the technology and then the the client does whatever he wants. Instead, we want to have complete control on the uses current future of the technology. We put conditions on the contractual agreement. And that is true for facial recognition. But then we do the same for other technologies. So those are the properties of the technology, uses of the technology. And the third one is the client itself. If the client doesn't have a good history of using technology in an appropriate and responsible way, we don't deliver it. I remember that once, for example, in one of the meetings of these evaluations of our offerings, the property was okay. The use was okay. We just were not convinced that the client, given how he had used technology in the past, so we didn't deliver it. Most of the time, we find ways of putting conditions in the contractual agreement such that we are confident that the technology is going to be used in a way that is aligned to our principles. But sometimes it may happen that we don't see a way or maybe we cannot put conditions in the contractual agreement or whatever. So sometimes we don't deliver what uh, the team proposes to deliver to our clients. So this is the way we build the structure. You know, we build everything about uh, tools, uh, education, uh, playbooks and so on to make sure that we know how to develop the technology with the right properties. And then we also look, once we deliver it and we use it, we also look at the uses and the clients. So is that something, so Heaven, you mentioned a couple of times the AI ethics board that you chair that we have, that is a pretty powerful tool for inside of IBM. Do you see a lot of companies do the same, not just technology companies, but also consumer companies, you know, that want to apply AI to say, we want to make sure that we're using these technologies in an ethical way? Well, more and more, we are talking with clients that want to know about our internal governance around AI ethics. So want to know about our board, also how the board relates with the business units. So we don't just have these 20 or something people on the board. We also have a structure that connects them to the business units. So for each business unit, we have a focal point, a person that 
whose job is to link that business units to the board with information in one direction, but also the other one. We also have an advocacy network of people that uh, are passionate about AI ethics. So they participate and join and support some of the AI board work streams for the period of time of that work stream. So we have a structure that tries to reach the whole company and more and more clients are asking us, tell us about your structure of governance because we want to adapt it. We need something similar internally for our own purposes, even if our company is structured in a different way. And we help them understand what could be a good governance structure for AI ethics within their company. So in general, I think that more and more, given that we spent several years in doing this journey around AI ethics, we can use these lessons learned during this path to help other companies accelerate their path. They don't need to spend all this six or seven years that we spent, you know, trying to figure out what was the best governance, the best solutions and so on around AI ethics, we can tell her our lessons learned and they can be faster than us in putting together what is needed within their companies. Okay. Very cool. How often does that board meet? Is that something that happens all the time or is it like quarterly or? No, the board as a board with all sorts of, you know, updates on the initiatives, updates on the regulations or decisions about new work streams meets about every six weeks. But we have other meetings, which we call them use case meetings, where the board and other people, for example, the offering teams of specific use cases meet and the offering team brings the description of the offering to our client and together with the board, the decision is made whether that offering can go to our, the client or it needs modifications or it cannot go. So, and that can happen even every week. So it depends on how many requests we get to discuss these offerings. But even in that offering evaluation not everything goes to the attention of the board because the focal points act as the first filter in the business unit for the offering team of that business unit. They go with the focal point, they discuss that offering, and then the focal point, which is educated in the process, can understand whether it's reasonable, you know, it's appropriate to bring it to the attention of the board or whether the decision can be made immediately about, yes, it can go or no, it cannot go. How much of this is linked with legal frameworks? And the reason I ask that is, doesn't that make it incredibly complicated, the fact that the laws will be different in every country that we operate in? So how do we find the lowest common denominator or how much do laws actually influence AI ethics anyway? So many times we say that AI ethics is beyond compliance to a regulation. So you need to put together some principles that are aligned to the values of the companies that maybe were there even before AI was in the picture. And then you go on with what you think is responsible in your view as a company, as values of the company. And regulations are one driver for a company, any company, to spend time on these issues and have concrete actions around these issues. But there are many other drivers, as, for example, Clients asked us, you know, what are you doing around bias? What are you doing about fairness, about explainability, about transparency? So if a company is not able to respond in a very well-prepared way, 
and we concrete things to propose, then clients is not going to trust that company, is not going to adopt the technology, is going to ask another company. So more and more, this uh, focus on the trust of the clients is even more important than regulations. But there is a lot of discussion with regulators. So for example, now there is a lot of discussion about the regulation proposal called the European Union AI Act, which is a very comprehensive regulation proposal from the European Commission to regulate AI applications with a risk-based approach. And that proposal was published in 2021 and now is being discussed with the European Parliament, the European Commission and all the other stakeholders in Europe, but not only in Europe, also in the US, also in other places, because this will have a, a big impact on how companies are going to do uh, around AI ethics if they deliver things in Europe, but also if they want to deliver in Europe and, and in many other places. And also is, is the only regulation proposal that is really comprehensive. So it touches everything around AI and it's not going to be in effect in one small region, but in the whole of the European Union. Instead, in the US, there are several regulations, but for example, in January 2023, there will be one in effect in the city of New York. So they're all state or city level, and they may be different in different states and cities, but in Europe, there will be this single regulation around AI that then will be, have to be adopted by all the European states. So that's very influential in terms of discussing what is the best way, best content for that regulation. And it's very influential, but we are doing things even if uh, there is no regulation. Uh, you know, we're doing things around what we deliver in Europe, for example, even if uh, uh, there is not yet a regulation around AI in Europe. Okay. We're slowly but steadily running out of time. There was one question, though, I, I always wanted to ask you, and I hope you don't take it as a trick question, but... So I recently found out that my insurance rates, what I pay for car insurance, is at least in part based on my credit rating. And I could swear that there's a machine learning model behind this, right, that basically spits out what I need to pay. That's a good example for something I find unfair. I feel like one should have nothing to do with the other. What would you as the ethics expert say to that? Well, unfair, usually in uh, AI, it means that you belong to a group or a category of people that are treated differently than another category. So in technical terms, if what happens to you happens to everybody is not unfair, according to the use of the fairness terminology in, in, in AI. And by the way, my credit rating happens to be very good. I actually benefit from this because it gives me a cheaper rate. I still feel like it shouldn't be tied to each other because my credit rating could be worth. That should not influence how much I pay for insurance, right? I agree. And in fact, being somebody who moved from Europe to the US seven years ago, I know very well that at the beginning, I had zero credit. Yeah, I couldn't even get car insurance in the beginning because I had no credit exactly. rating. So I couldn't get anything because I had zero credit. Of course, the credit that one has in another country in the U.S. is not considered at all. But what you are referring is more like connection of different data sets and different personal data about you that are connected to make a decision that impacts our life. For example, your 
financial situation of your whatever other things and so that is more about data issues more than fairness is more about data sharing and data privacy sharing usage of data what is allowed or what is responsible to do with the data that a certain entity can have about you because some entities collect some data some others collect some other data so probably they got this data together and now they are making decisions based on different kinds of data about you or about anybody else so that for example is also the issue of what a society thinks that is responsible to do with the data it's something that also received a lot of attention and is still receiving. And again, in that sense, Europe was ahead of other parts of the world. Because with this regulation called the General Data Protection Regulation, that really was a regulation that forced companies to comply to certain rules about collecting or sharing data and about being transparent, for example, about what they do with the data. So even uh, some people think that GDPR is not powerful enough or is too complex, but still it was, and it still is, a piece of regulation that really decided to focus deeply on the usage of the data and the sharing and the collection. And that is an ethical question, or there is an ethical part to it. Right, it is related to AI ethics to some degree. Yes, definitely. Of course, in principle... The use of your personal data to give you personalized services with the technology, in principle, is not unresponsible. In principle, it's something that one may desire. So I get the personalized service because they use my data. They don't use the data of somebody else. But, of course, one has to be careful because that leads to this mix of different data sets and then usage of things that one wouldn't like to share So that people lose control on what is shared and how it's used and who is shared with other entities that is shared with. So definitely it's the data issues are one of the main issues with AI because machine learning approaches are based on data and especially also personalized data, of course. So that's one of the main issues together with, as I said, fairness, explainability, transparency, robustness and all the other issues. All right. Very cool. I have one final question for you before we uh, need to let you go. And that is, do you have an example of something that you're working on or that you're about to get started on that gets you really excited, something really cool that's up and coming that kind of makes you want to get out of bed in the morning and go to work? Well, there are many things. uh, So I'll give you two. One is around uh, the ethics uh, part of the technology, which is uh, this uh, work stream that we have around uh, neuroethics. And neuroethics, we mean the ethics of neurotechnology. Uh, Neurotechnology is not as well advanced as AI in terms of applications yet, but it's coming very soon. And it may bring additional ethics issues compared to AI, also because it will probably be used in combination with AI. Because neurotechnology has the capability of reading our data, our neurodata, data from our central nervous system, but also has the capability of writing new data into our central nervous system. So issues like mental privacy, human agency, human identity 
are even more expanded than they are with AI. So that's an interesting, for me, work stream where we try to compare AI ethics and neuroethics, and we published papers on these lessons that each field can learn from another one. And then another thing that also I'm very excited about is my current research project that I lead, which is about using cognitive theories of how humans make decisions, and in particular, the thinking fast and slow theory of Daniel Kahneman, to understand how to build machines that have a similar dual modality in making decisions, the fast modality and the slow modality, and the metacognitive agent that combines the two in the best way. So what we are seeing now that these machines have emerging behaviors that are similar to what emerges like in a human being. For example, that most of the time when we tackle a new problem, we use first our thinking slow because we are not familiar with the problem, but then after a while we move and we switch to a thinking fast, maintaining or even increasing the quality of the decision that we make. So that's a very interesting for me because it's multidisciplinary and we look at what we know about our mind to advance AI. All right. Very cool. That sounds very interesting. And now I almost wish I would have asked that question earlier to have more time to, <laughs> to spend on it. But we're out of time now. We didn't talk about hybrid cloud computing at all. At the same time, I do feel like cloud is what brings a lot of these technologies to bear, right? And so there is definitely that relationship. So I feel like we're, we're still in scope of what we're trying to cover in the podcast. So thank you so much for coming. This was some great insight. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So with that, we're going to wrap it up for today. Thank you all for listening and hope to see you all soon again. Bye-bye.